2: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead.
1: And me, Richard Lee.
2: This week, we're talking to Adam Rutherford about his takedown of the pseudoscience behind race, how to argue with a racist. Plus, we'll be talking about whether writers ever really retire. But first, Adam Rutherford is a scientist and broadcaster whose first book, Creation, dealt with the origin and future of life, no less. Now he's moved on to tackle one of the most contentious issues of our time. When he came into the studio, he started by explaining why, after all these years, we still need to challenge ancient prejudices masquerading as fact.
1: Well, i wanted to start by saying it's kind of extraordinary to be sitting here in 2020, needing a book making the case that there's no scientific basis to racism. Why did you feel that you really had to write this book now? Has, has the science changed? Has society?
3: Yeah. I, I did a lecture last year um, in which that was basically my opening line. <laughs> that I'm delighted to be in front of you and I'm really proud of the book and I'm, I've really en- enjoyed, I'm not sure it's quite the right yeah. word, but I, I have written and, and, and enjoyed writing it. And yet this is a book that, uh, well, w- w- why does it exist? So one of the things I talk about at the beginning is is that um, you know very well there's been a massive change in, in the political landscape in the last few years, rise of nationalism and so on. There's, there is a measurable increase in the vocalization of racism in in the public discourse which has been enabled by social media to a certain extent and then you've got a, an equivalent rise or increase in our understanding of genetics which is a, which is a subject which has an inherent and intrinsic root with scientific racism um and also eugenics which is a you know different but related concept as a public communicator of science and a geneticist the conversations we are having within the academy were not the same conversations that were happening or beginning to emerge in, in public life. And that, that is a failing of the academy to convey accurately what the science says about race. So with those, all of those sort of parallel lines of a changing landscape beginning to merge, it, this
1: it, Unfortunately, this book is, I think, is an necessity. There oh, we are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, is it just that genetics is hard? I mean, it's hard enough that people can misrepresent the results in the knowledge that only experts can tell them they're wrong and also complicated enough that there are ways of picking and choosing so you can get something that's actually quite dodgy that nobody might be able to tell unless they were an expert. Do we all just need to get better at doing science? Well, that, that is definitely part of the problem.
3: And this is obviously a, a complex tapestry and a jigsaw of, of, of why, as you say, this book is, is, is an necessity in 2020, um, our understanding of genetics, the understanding of the genome uh, in the last 20 years has just exploded in a way that geneticists find hard to keep up. Mm. So as a a sort of a public face of of genetics, this is something that is part of my my purview. You know, it's in my wheelhouse. You mean there's
1: just some work to do here?
3: Well, yeah, but this stuff is ridiculously complicated. And so, so, you know, the human genome is the most complicated data set we've ever encountered. And you couple that with human history, which... (laughs) Is not necessarily straightforward, <laughs> um, and, and you know one of the things I've always said is in, in all of my work is is how we now are capable of using the genome as a historical source. So there are lots of questions that we couldn't answer before about the history and evolution of us as a people that are beginning to emerge with our newfound understanding of genetics. Now the the flip side to this is that there has been a, a, a rise. Um, admittedly amongst a fringe group of scientists, sometimes who are sort of peripherally associated with real science, but whose voices are amplified by social media, who have an understanding of of population genetics, which is effectively what what, what we're talking about here, but not such a profound understanding that that, uh, they are prevented from saying things which are effectively either not true or their reasons for saying them are motivated by by racism or race, uh, as we used to understand it. The line I use in the book is that they appear to be more interested in the race than the science itself.
1: Mm, Yeah, for sure. I mean, you say that history is not straightforward, but it's shocking to find brilliant minds like Linnaeus or Voltaire or Kant getting it so wrong. But what do you think was the motivation? Why was Linnaeus wanting to label subspecies of Homo sapiens lazy or stubborn or greedy or Voltaire, for God's sake, of calling black people animals or declaring them stupid? Was it a kind of conscious project to justify colonialism or were they just so drenched in it they couldn't help themselves? We have it concurrent with the emergence of colonialism and European expansionism
3: and the age of plunder that this is the first time that a lot of people in Europe are are coming across experiencing people of the rest of the world. Now, if you are capable of othering those people, then they're much easier to subjugate. And so my argument, which is not, this is not the first time this has been presented, this is a historical argument uh, that is well established, is that science becomes co-opted, it becomes marshaled into a political ideology in order to make that subjugation easier. Now, the motivations for people like Linnaeus and Voltaire and Kant and Blumenbach and a whole host, well, basically all of them, in trying to apply a scientific, what we now know as a pseudoscientific taxonomy to the people of the world. This is the act of, of, um, classification, which, which is part of the subjugation process. So it's, it's not the way round that we like to think science is now, which is that we harvest the data and we make the observations and we do the experiments, and then we allow political ideologies to come out of that w- whilst the su- science is being discussed in, in the public discourse. This, at the beginning of the age of enlightenment, as we call it, and, and, and also the birth of the scientific revolution. We have a bunch of proto-scientists who are not d- doing good science, but are doing very, very strong racism. Mm. And the roots of that are really are the 17th and 18th century in Europe, but they percolate into the present. And we still see, and I think with the emergence of new genetic techniques, we are seeing a recapitulation of some of those ideas just with a new data set, which
1: is DNA. Uh, and it was basically everybody. There weren't a bunch of scientists who were seeing the data properly and saying, hey, it's not like that, but who just weren't getting heard. It's the whole lot. Well that's a really important and interesting
3: question because of course it's really important that we don't say we don't judge people by contemporary more, mores that that is you know a standard line in history but i also think it has been used historically as a get out clause for saying well, everyone thought. Everyone was more racist back then. Because you can contemporize their views, and you can say, you can look at what Voltaire said and compare it to what Kant said and what Linnaeus said. And it is possible to say, well, Voltaire was more racist than Kant, for example. And there are people within this mix who display a, a, a much, <laughs> a much less racist worldview <laughs> for the 18th century than others. There's this one guy, Gottfried von Herder, who's a German... Proto-scientist at the same time as Blumenbach and and all these and Kant, particularly he's, he's Kant's main antagonist on this, and he's well known in Germany but less well known here and around the rest of the world. He is much more accurate as a depiction of race in terms of how we understand it today. He describes continuity. He he of human types. He rejects the notion that there are races in the first place, and and describes what we now know from population genetics, which is that. What we see in people genomically is a recapitulation of human history—the way people have migrated around the world. Now, I, I got to this point when I was when I was reading, I, I discovered von Herder from reading other historians' works, and um, I thought, "Wow, this guy's." Like so enlightened. He's so 21st century. This is amazing. He's my new hero. And I kept reading and he was a massive anti-Semite as well oh. uh, and uh, described black people as being more like monkeys. So at the same time as getting the science uh, less wrong,
1: you know, everyone is much,
3: much more racist.
1: And uh, the science that he was getting right couldn't be heard because it
3: didn't fit with the colonial project. That's true. And his like I said, his main antagonist was Kant. And he's, he's the, you know, he's the big guy on the block. He's the main guy. Right. And, yeah. and you know, everyone knows Kant. And who's, who's, a you know, an important thinker in Western philosophy? Just a little bit racist. Just a little yeah. bit
1: racist. Uh, your Native American ancestors are fabulous story. But mm-hmm. as you explain, this colourful history of your great, 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 great grandmother and Handy's travelling circus obscures the fact that the stories of the other 63 women you're equally related to are lost, which suggests a kind of wider point, that all evolutionary histories are histories of loss. Do you think? that inevitable focus on the ones who won, the ones who made it through, is part of the reason why our evolution looks so mysterious. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that this is a, this is a different uh,
3: marshalling, a different co-opting of science into a, into a field which is effectively I, uh, the the belonging and identity. I'm reluctant to say identity politics, although it does come into it, especially with white supremacists. But the the emergence of companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com who offer a service which appears to... Be able to scientify your genealogy and say, well, you do belong in this group, or you do belong in multiple groups, because I think a lot of people gain great pleasure from discovering they have multiple lines of our previously unknown ancestry. The, the The reason I use that Native American story is, well, it's super cool that I've got one one what is it, six times great grandmother who was who's described on her wedding certificate as a savage, <laughs> because her father was imported from the Americas from the Kotorba tribe to be a Uh, horse jumping showman in a traveling circus. That is a cool story. It's a cool story. Does it make me Native American? Absolutely not. I have no biological nor cultural connection with Native Americans. And as you say, the vast majority of people pass through history as shadows and dust. And we only identify the ones that have infamy or fame or interesting stories. But all, they, do, do they have any bearing on us as individuals? Do they have any bearing on us and our behaviour or our, our our characters or identity? It, my, in my opinion, almost always, absolutely not.
1: You say that science is trying to be objective, Uh, but there are moments in this book when your prose starts to build a kind of unstoppable momentum when you're describing how racial stereotypes intersect with swimming or the lasting impact of a dubious paper by Gregory Cochran and so on. Uh, Was this book written in anger? It was an interesting process because
3: um, I found myself at times... Some of the history of race science is so absurd that it's just funny. So Linnaeus is a good example of this. So he, he was profoundly, um, uh, his descriptions of, of humans in his categorizations from which we get the five types of humans, which which five races of humans, which many people still sort of colloquially refer to today. He introduced another class, which was Homo sapiens monstroso. That includes feral wolf girls and um, Patagonian dwarfs. And my favorite, I think, Maybe my favourite line I've ever written out: um, uh, "Monoorchid Hottentots." That's his phraseology. So what that means is uh, what we now call Khoisan men with one testicle. Now this this that's funny, right? Because it's absurd. It's absurd. It's, it's exactly. Absolutely that. absurd. So there were definitely times when I'm writing this this book and thinking this it's so ridiculous that how could this ever have been considered serious? And at other times, I'm writing about the history of slavery mm-hmm. and the history of, of empire, and, and these are the worst acts perpetrated by humans on other humans. Um, we think we know, you know, people know slavery was bad, right? That's a, a reasonable starting point. He scratched me the surface, and it, it, it is so much, so much worse than, than we think we know. The way the Native Americans have been treated over the last 400 years in North America is just such a depressing and awful tale again much much worse than at least I was aware of and you know many people I'm sure historians will know these stories so yeah it was uh, kind of fun at times uh, kind of extremely depressing in terms of the belligerence the, the title is how to argue with a racist it's um uh, it's meant to be to equip people because these conversations are happening, I think, more and more.
1: No, I mean, I guess I, I'm asking sort of about a question of strategy. Do you mm. think anger is a good strategy at this point? I
3: think the swimming is not a bad example because um, w- th- th- this emerged out of a conversation I was having with a friend uh, who is. Uh, Nigerian by birth, we're talking about swimming, we're talking about athletics, there's a whole section on sport. Uh, he, he mentioned that, uh, well, black people don't swim, do they? And I said, I'm sorry, what? And he said, well, you know, black people don't swim. It's, we, we, we just don't swim. It's something to do with our bone density. And, and this is not the first time we've heard this. And then you, 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 you look deeper, and there is a great longstanding um, belief, among, including amongst black people, um, that there is some biological anti-swimming factor. And I was thinking, well, this is nuts, not just because it exists as a racial trope or stereotype, but that people of color or people of African descent have actually adopted this. And when you look at the surveys, when you look at the data, the best of which have been done by looking at African-Americans by the uh, Swim USA, which is the national swimming body, You look at the correlates of why 70% of African-Americans can't swim, and I won't do them all, but they are socioeconomic because they tend to be outside of school programmed. After segregation in sixty four. most swimming pools were built in in wealthier districts. Um, No role models. The number of uh, people who have competed in the Olympics in swimming events who African-Americans is? I'm guessing zero. It's two, actually. Two? (laughs) Yeah. Two, two. In, in the history of the Olympics. But the biggest one, and this is the type of stuff that drives me nuts, the biggest correlate with not being able to swim is not being taught how to swim. Now, it's so obvious. That's such an obvious thing. And yet we invent pseudoscientific nonsense like black people have denser bones and therefore they sink when actually the most important thing is being taught how to swim. I, I, I think that is a cause for sort of anger maybe but sort of despair but people need to know this because if if my black friends are telling me i can't swim because my bones are too dense then then that's a deep cultural problem and the you know the awful punchline to this is this is literally lethal in america children between the age of five and fourteen african americans drown at a rate three times higher than white children And a problem that can literally be addressed with swimming lessons. Swimming lessons is how people learn to swim. It really is as straightforward as that.
1: While we're talking about strategy as well, you you open your discussion of Cochrane's paper by saying you'll set aside the crippling difficulties in describing populations as distinct, discrete or as races. But isn't that lending legitimacy to that racist argument? I mean, there's no point in arguing about the dodgy science behind some paper if the genetics of race just don't stand up. Uh, yes, it's not. It's not an invalid
3: criticism you're, you're making, but the. I have to be really honest about the science. I'm. I, I'm not a race historian. I'm a geneticist, and so my baseline is: what does the data say? I have to be straightforward about that. As the events of of the Second World War and the and the uh, the Holocaust became known, uh, uh, in the second half of the of the twentieth century. There was a sort of swing away from biological determinism, the idea that everything that is within us is innate, which was the sort of predominant, sort of broadly the predominant theory before then. And we swung to a sort of more of a blank slate, tabula rasa type, type argument that actually we, our behaviors and our characteristics, are, are, we, we learn them through our, our social environment. Now, when you, whenever in science you have sort of Polaroid debates like that, that then the answer is always somewhere in the middle. But blank slatism is not correct. And, and we don't think that. Sensible people don't think that. Well, some people have a tendency to just say, well, we are all equal, right? We're all equal. We all have the same potential. The science doesn't say that, right? That we, we have genetic predispositions to all sorts of things which, are, which mean that we're not born with a level playing field. Now, that, I'm not endorsing that as a political view. That is simply what the science says. There is a, an innate level of intelligence which can be metricized in some form. Again, this doesn't have any necessary policy implications or how we should think or talk about intelligence, but these are basic facts. So recognising that people are different, I think, is a really important tactic in this whole argument, not least because it's true, but also because... If you go out and tell people that race doesn't exist, a certain proportion of people are going to respond who aren't racists are going to say, well, I mean, what do you mean by that? Because, that, you know, this person is a black person. And if I say they're a black person, you know what I'm talking about. Well, this person is East Asian. They are clearly physically different from me. And yet you're saying that we're all the same. Well, you know, I, I, I want to be I, I want to tackle those sorts of arguments as well, and try to understand what the weight of those differences is. And and so the qualification on the, on the, the maxim, race doesn't exist, is that it, race doesn't exist from a scientific, biological point of view. I want to be absolutely, explicitly clear. Race does exist because it's a social construct, not in spite of it being a social construct. Social constructs are the basis of human interactions. Right? Time is a social construct. Money is a social construct. So when people say, oh, look, you're, you're mad. You say that race is just a social construct. Yeah, social constructs of <laughs> everything. Recognizing that people are different. Recognizing that there is biological difference between people and that people look different. And this largely correlates with uh, geographical land masses. Trying to understand population histories. Trying to understand that there are genetic differences between groups of people. And then also recognizing that those biological differences do not correlate with the the colloquial uses of race that we currently use. And this, again, is why the history is important, because all of these categorizations that we use are less than 400 years old. This is not some universal, innate categorization system that is so obvious. That, that it's been the same for forever and ever. This is an invention of the Enlightenment. This is an invention of co- colonialization before the Enlightenment, before Western expansion, European expansion and plunder. There are plenty of references to skin color and, and physical characteristics, but they are not the primary way that uh, cultures and civilizations and groups and populations other or describe um, people that they encounter. Religion, Language, geography, cultural practices, these are far, far more common in the pre-Enlightenment era.
1: So these, these ways of talking, these ways of describing people uh, are, as you say, quite recent. They're also kind of plain wrong in lots of ways. So why do you think people keep returning to them? What's the attraction?
3: Well, evolution has deceived our eyes. And this is the point about science. We try to remove humans from trying to understand reality because, like you said, we very casually say, black people. If I say black people, you, the, the, you, the listeners, know roughly what, what we might be talking about, except for the fact that one, there are 1.3 billion people in Africa um, who, on average, have darker skins than, than people in Europe. And we know from a genetic point of view that there is more genetic diversity within Africa than there is in the rest of the world put together. This is an evolutionary, um, uh, cause behind that which is that we are an African species and so a small proportion of humans left Africa to populate the rest of the world whereas the whole mass of Africa there is just so many more people within Africa that remained there within the last 100,000 years and so what that means is that a, you know a woman from Angola is more likely to be more different uh, to a woman from Uganda than either one of them is to a, a Chinese man or a Maori, or a Native American, and these are just this is just a genetic fact. So there's more genetic diversity within Africa than the rest of the world. There's also more pigmentation diversity in Africa than in the rest of the world. We only know this because the studies on on about pigmentation in Africa have been done in the last five years. And and this is this is another point, a bit like the swimming point, where I get a bit agitated. We've got a system a social system of race which is almost entirely based on pigmentation and was set up based on pigmentation for 500 years ago. No one started looking at, at the genetics of skin colour until the second decade of the 21st century. And lo and behold, it turns out there is more pigmentation diversity in Africa than in the rest of the
1: world. These things are like complicated, though at some level. I mean, are you expecting that there's going to be some sort of Copernican moment when these complicated truths percolate through and people kind of understand all those new results and, and things flip around for everybody in wider society? Well, obviously, I hope so. Um, the, I, I think
3: a lot of people think these things are true already anyway. But the, what's interesting from a, from a scientific point of view is that as the science has become more detailed, and more complicated, and we understand the genome better than ever, and, and we're still working on that. There's a long way to go. Our, what it demonstrates is that the ideas of the late 20th century about race and genetics remain true, and that there isn't some great revelation that as we deep, dig deeper into the genome, suddenly we discovered, oh, there is an innate characteristic, a biological characteristic, which, which you know, just just aligns perfectly with East Asians or Aboriginal Australians or, or Europeans or, or whatever. None of those taxonomies, none of those, those clear classification boxes have been um, reinforced by our further understanding of genetics. Every day I get messages from people saying, I am sacrificing scientific integrity at the altar of political correctness or some such similar nonsense phrase like that. And I hope that I'm not doing that, and I think that I'm honest, I'm trying not to do that. But there's another point which is really worth nailing, which is that racism is not bad because it's based on really shoddy science. Racism is bad because it's an affront to human dignity. The whole point is, the point of the book is, if you're going to be a racist, then you don't have science on your side. And mine is a very powerful ally.
2: Adam Rutherford. How to Argue with a Racist is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in both the UK and the US. After the break, we'll be talking about whether a writing career ever really comes to a...
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. Full stop.
2: Bookmarked an article, but never returned to read it. You're not alone. With The Guardian's Audio Long Reads podcast, you can listen to expert writing on a diverse range of issues whenever suits you. From immigration, at each appeal, she was refused the right to stay in the country, to cult novelists.
0: He could not avoid writing murder on his list of options.
2: For long-form journalism without all the reading, listen to The Guardian's Audio Long Reads on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Guardian Books podcast. Speaking to The Guardian last week, the romantic novelist Nora Roberts, 69-year-old author of more than 220 novels with sales of over 500 million books worldwide, said she had no plans to retire. I'm told that Robert B. Parker, one of my favourite authors, died at his computer. She said, Bob, that's just the way to go. (laughs) I'm not pretending to do an American accent. (laughs) So this got us thinking about whether writers ever really retire. Um, The ones who do, it's, it's quite a select
1: bunch, isn't it, Richard? Yeah, I was, I was thinking back about this, and it, I was just. The, the obvious one who springs to mind now is Philip Roth who I think uh, who decided he was going to go and retire and watch some baseball, which I thought was, was a terrific idea.
2: And also have barbecues with his friends on his balcony, which he'd never, he'd either they'd distracted him from his writing, or his writing had distracted him, him from them. Yes, it is such
1: a thing, because we always thought of Philip Roth as such a kind of saturnine figure, didn't we? Uh, moping away about the state of America. But in fact, he was always just having a great time as much as he could, in between the, in between the deathless prose. And there was a series of small, uh, tiny phone interviews he gave during this period before he passed away, um, where he was just clearly having the most marvellous time. But you're right, there aren't very many of them.
2: There's also that another example is Lee Child, mm. who Lee Child who has sort of belatedly become this extraordinary cult author, although he he, he is a genre writer He's, he's got this extraordinary um, following which which ranges from Margaret Macmillan, the historian, to Kate Atkinson, to Margaret Drabble.
1: Suddenly literary people coming out of the woodwork to declare themselves fans.
2: Just at the point at which he decides to hang up his, <laughs> hang up his boots and give his give his franchise to his brother, Andrew, which is uh, hilariously, he said he'd only give him the the right to write Lee Child novels if he changed his surname to Child. Child being a pseudonym that Lee Child himself adopted, having been born Jim Grant. Back in the day.
1: Yeah, so handing on not only the pen, but also the name. The <laughs> crucial equipment for a successful career.
2: I, If I am th- taking a, a purely subjective view on it, I can see if you're a sort of factory, a book factory and you belong to this this tradition of churning out a book a year, why would you, it's a sort of day job really, isn't it? And I I could see the temptations of not always having to make your February deadline in order to be in the bookshops for September in time for the Christmas market, which is what <laughs> they suffer from. But there are occasionally, there are other writers, sorts of writers as well who retire. For example, um, the, the biographer Michael Holroyd announced, he was in his 80s, mind you, that he was going to retire. But, you know, he's written such painstaking literary biographies. I can imagine just the 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 job of assembling the material, and and also the length of those projects. If you're in your 80s, you you know it could take you 10 years to produce your next work. I can see that that would be more tempting. But the thing is, most writers they are writers by temperament, and I, that is their primary identity. So how can you actually give up your primary identity?
1: Well, I mean, there's there's writers throughout the ages who refused to go quiet, who kept on producing right to the very end.
2: Yes. Edna O'Brien, I mean, <laughs> through the ages, Edna O'Brien. I, actually, she's my hero. I mean, I read Girl, her her most recent novel, out last year, which is...
1: Which raised some eyebrows.
2: Which was set in... It's set in northern Nigeria, and it's about girls being kidnapped by Boko Haram. And she's 88, an 88-year-old Irish woman. She took herself off to the north of... Of of Nigeria, which is pretty much badlands to go and research this subject and produce this novel, which actually I was very very sceptical about, but I I was entirely won over by it because you know and, and she's somebody who could you just think she even if she isn't publishing she'll wake up every morning and pen a beautiful sentence because that's what she's been doing all her life.
1: No, I guess it's a bit like Charles Dickens, isn't it? Who um, who just carried on going. Well, he did, on have, going. Yeah,
2: he did have a farewell
1: tour. But his farewell tour was part of the brand, part of going on. And he was in the middle of a novel when he actually passed away.
2: Yeah, he, yeah, he was writing Edred, Edwin Drood, which then never got published in his lifetime. So, yeah, I guess. I mean, he, he was the original sort of celeb. And also, actually, in contradicting my my thesis, my rather one thesis, (laughs) he was he was the original person who wrote to order for over very many years, and uh, you know, in in those days, wrote wrote in serials. But the most interesting category, I think, is the people who say they're going to retire, and and don't. So, (laughs) (laughs) my favorite. Declare it. My favorite is Jim Crace, who I, I absolutely love. Jim Crace and and regular followers of this podcast will remember us having him on the podcast last for the melody Um, but when he wrote harvest which was in contention for the booker in 2013 I think it was he announced that that was going to be his very last novel and I don't think that was the first time he'd ever done it either and then back he came he's always going to come back but you know what I can see is how when you finished a novel and you're confronted with the juggernaut of publicity the exhaustion of the whole process I can absolutely see why probably most writers at some point in this life cycle of any one book will have this feeling, oh my god, if only I could retire. Yeah, the
1: urge, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Frayn um, was another serial retirer, or non-retirer. Um, in 2012 he said, uh, he, he, he said, I'm never going to write anything ever again, but that was after saying in 2006 that if you don't actually have a job, it's very hard to know if you've retired from it. Nobody comes in and gives you a clock, and maybe that's the thing. There's no kind of end point. And as you say, if writing is part of your identity, Entity, then you just keep going. Another one,
2: um if we're talking about younger people, is Jonathan Franzen. Jo- Jonathan Franzen, just before his sixtieth birthday, said that his his novel he just written felt like his last. But but at the same time, he said to another outlet, I think I think he said that he was going to retire to the New York Times, and he told us the Guardian that he he never planned to retire. So so he was sort of playing it both ways, and probably he was torn at some level. probably felt both you know both things at the, uh, at those particular moments, and I think that's. You know, I think that's sort of perfectly fair.
1: Yeah, what about you, Claire? Are you going to be a books podcast until you until you pop your clogs? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Perish the thought. <laughs> yes, until I can't put two thoughts together,
1: Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm past that point already,
2: <laughs> and I'm afraid we're going to have to stop that that conversation now before it becomes too abusive <laughs> next week we'll be talking to the crime writer sophie hannah about her unexpected swerve into memoir but for now if you have any thoughts about this week's episode get in touch on twitter at guardian books or on the podcast page and remember you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from but for now from me claire armistead
1: me richard lee
2: and our producer esther Apoku jenny goodbye and thanks for listening